Last week, at the office, um, out of nowhere, my air conditioner began to really struggle to cool down uh, the little room that, that, that I'm stationed in. I could hear it. The, uh, the unit up in the attic was turned on. There was definitely noise. There was a little bit of air movement. Um, it wasn't a particularly hot day or cold day, so I kind of ignored it. I knew my air conditioner was struggling, um, but I thought, you know what? Maybe it'll fix itself. Maybe it'll work itself out. It didn't. <laughs> Next day was really hot, like in the mid-80s to high-80s, and I definitely noticed it as soon as I got to the office. So I did what my father-in-law, who works with AC units, taught me to do. I changed the uh, return filter, which was all clogged up, and I thought, man, that'll probably do it. Uh, that didn't do it either. It didn't, the air didn't get cold. So I said, you know what? I got to go home and get my shop back. I went home and got my shop back. All you handymen know what I was doing next, right? I had to suck out the PVC, the little three-quarter inch drain line in the back, and it had a lot of sludge in it. I thought, good deal, man. That's it. Now it's going to run like a champ. It didn't run like a champ. And I thought, well, it's frozen up. The unit's frozen up from all these problems. So I'll shut it off, let it thaw out overnight, and come back in the morning, and then it'll work. I did all that and I came back the next day and it didn't work. And I thought, man, what in the world is going on? And then there was a knock on the front door and it was the landlord. And she had with her two air conditioner <clears throat> workers. And they climbed up in the attic and they came down and they nodded and they said, we have bad news. And I said, what? And they said, uh, there's a lady who rents uh, a piano uh, thing in the back of you here. And she was coming to work the other day and she pulled up like she has done for the last 35 years, but instead of hitting the brake, she hit the gas. And she ran over the outside air conditioner uh, unit, the condenser, the compressor, the compressor, the coils, the fan. Not only did she run over it, she mangled it. And she knocked that thing clean off the little three by three con concrete slab that it was on, knocked it clean off. So what was I doing inside? I was, I was doing what I could, I was struggling, I thought, I think, I think it's working. I hear something. I feel air. So I changed the filter. I sucked out the fill line, but it wasn't working. And do you know why it wasn't working? Because there was no power, friends. Didn't have any power. Kind of like this microphone I was using earlier. There was no power. So I was busy. I was doing things. I was wishing for the best. I was hoping for the best. But didn't have any power to get that, uh, that air conditioner down. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I think that is a very good illustration for the way that a lot and I'm not using hyperbola as a pastor. I've been in the ministry long enough now. That's the good thing about being 45 and being in ministry for a decade and a half. I can make some observations and people may take me serious like they did when I was in my 20s, right? I didn't know what I was talking about. I encounter a lot of Christians and they're trying things. They're putting their hand up and saying, is it where the air's moving or is it? It's just not cold enough. They're changing their filters, metaphorically speaking. They're sucking the fill lines out, but they're struggling because there's no power. Because that one thing, the one central thing in their life that God says they need to expose themselves to over and over and over again and meditate on it and celebrate it and take it all in, that thing is either missing, it's been knocked off the slab, or is what I found out earlier, uh, not only did the air conditioner get mangled, but the, the tenant next door drug it out of the way and that night somebody came and stole it for the copper in the coil. <laughs> so maybe somebody has stolen the power right out from under you and you had no idea. And this message is going to prove, I hope, at least if not the message, the subject of the message is going to prove really important and vital for you because I encounter a lot of people and that's the way they live their Christian life. They don't have any power. They're busy. They're doing a lot of stuff. 
but their marriage is a certain way, their parenting is a certain way, they view their job a certain way, they have personal struggles, maybe with lust, with anger, besetting sins, they just can't seem to shake, they've done everything, they've gone to a conference, they've read the book, they've talked to the experts, no power. And I think what God wants us to see when we view this story, this is history, it's Mark's chronicling the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. But there's something really powerful here that I do not want us to miss. I just don't want to get into the details of this happened and then this happened and then this happened. No, there's a deep and powerful meaning behind the cross. There really is. You know, the Apostle Paul knew this. He wrote much of the New Testament. All, just about all the epistles were, were Paul, and then there was John and Peter and Jude and a few others, but mostly Paul. He wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, which means God knows that even after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all about the life and death of Jesus, you still need to know more about what that event meant as a church. You still need to know more about it. We still need to probe deeper into the meaning of the cross. Believers need to probe deeper into the meaning because Christians, in my experience, we tend to view the cross like you would a jigsaw puzzle. Well, I've already put that together. I don't need to do that again. Unless you're one of those weird people that do the same jigsaw puzzle over and over and over, right? Or it's like a movie you've seen that had this crazy plot twist and it's no fun the second time. You already know how it happens. You already know. And you're like, come on, we're not kids. We don't sing the same songs over and over and over. We don't watch the same shows over and over and over and play with the same toys over and over and over and put the same puzzle together over and over and over. We're not childish. Well, maybe that's the wrong way to view it. Maybe kids are onto something. Maybe we're not being childish if we consider the cross again. Maybe we're being childlike. Childlike wonder. Have you ever heard that? Didn't Jesus say that the kingdom of heaven, uh, children will inherit the kingdom of heaven, such as these, right? Maybe kids are onto something. I think sometimes we're so filled with ourselves, we think, man, I got to get deeper teaching. This cross thing's well and good, but I need deeper, I need deep things of God. But friends, the Bible says that angels long to look into the meaning of the cross. Did you know that? Angels, beings that are thousands of years old and are super intelligent. And you know what they're curious about? That word long, it means like to literally stand on the edge of something and, and peer deeply into it. Angels want to know more about the cross. I've told you this story, so forgive me if I'm in, you know, replay mode. But years ago, I was kind of minding my own business, preaching the gospel, and a guest came up to me, and he said, man, that was, that was good and everything, but <laughs> he said, when are you going to get to the good stuff? When are you going to get to the deep things of God? And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't really know anything deeper than that. I'm sorry. I mean, there's other churches you could probably go to, and they'll wax eloquently and get into some details, but... That's as deep as I want to get, man. That's, you know, when Jesus was on the mountain of transfiguration and he was meeting with Moses and Elijah, two representatives of the law and the prophets, would you have liked to have been there and heard what they talked about? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, what does Jesus talk with Moses and Elijah about? Well, guess what? We know. The Bible tells us what they were talking about. You know what it was? They were talking about his departure, his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. How about that? you got the premier lawgiver and you've got the premier prophet. And are they talking about the deep things of God? They sure are. They're talking about the cross. Angels long to look into it. Jesus talked about it. The apostle Paul talked about it. As a matter of fact, and I'm going off script here, but that's okay. This microphone makes me want to go off script, I guess. <laughs> Can't hold my notes. <laughs> Whenever Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, do you guys know much about the Corinthian church? 
You know, the, there's two letters in your New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And I just got to be straight up honest with you. Corinthians was a messed up church. I mean, it was messed up bad. Paul planted that church. He was their pastor. And he had to go away for a little while. And he, he got letters from members and saying, Paul, you're not going to believe what's going on. People are coming together for communion, for, for the Lord's Supper, and they're getting drunk. Straight up getting toasted at the Lord's Supper. That's what they were doing. Not only that, people are engaged in acts of sexual immorality in the church, and none of the leaders are doing anything about it. Not only that, there's arguments and factions and conflict breaking out, and Christians are actually taking one another to court at Corinth, <laughs> the city hall. They're taking other believers to court before all the watching unbelievers, and they're suing each other. And not only that, Paul, they're playing favorites with, you know, Paul's my favorite preacher, no, Apollos is the, the best preacher, Peter's the best preacher, there's a long list of other things that they were messed up on. And so Paul wrote them a letter. Did you guys know this? That's what 1 Corinthians is. Paul wrote that letter to the church he planted that consisted of believers. They were Christians. He didn't write them a letter and said, you're not a believer. I can't believe you're acting like this. He wrote them a letter responding to concerned members that had this long list of questions. And they're like, Paul, what do we do? What do we do about this? What do we do about Marriage, what do we do about singleness? What do we do about all these conflicts? And you know what Paul said? He said something really interesting in that letter. I'm going to put this slide up because it's really important. This is what he said. Chapter 1. He didn't answer any other questions initially. At least he didn't answer the question they were asking. Because sometimes we ask the wrong questions as Christians, don't we? Can you fix this, pastor? Can you fix this or this? You know the first thing Paul said? He says, you asked the wrong question. The question you should have asked is, where do we get power to live faithful lives, to faithfully follow Jesus as a disciple, and to demonstrate his transforming power to a watching world? Where do we get the power to live obediently and to live faithfully? You didn't ask, you didn't ask that question, Corinthians, but I'm going to answer it. And here's what he said. This is so amazing, guys. Check this out. It says, for the word of the cross, that's what we're looking at in Mark 15, for the word of the cross is folly. It means foolishness. It's the word that we get moron from. It's moronic to those who are perishing. That means unbelievers who couldn't care less. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Paul's writing to a church filled with Christians, people who have already believed the gospel. And he tells them to us who are being saved. He doesn't say... Now, to those of you who have already been saved, or to those of you who will be saved, there's a powerful word about the cross. No, he says, to those of us who are being saved. That doesn't mean it's a works-based salvation. We're justified, declared blameless. Bam, in a moment, we belong to God, we're in the kingdom. But the Bible uses this word called sanctification, and it means you're growing in holiness. You are conforming the image of Jesus more and more clearly as you understand more deeply who you are in Christ. And that's what he means here. We are being saved. But here's the, here's the real kick about this verse. He doesn't say it was the power of God. Right? That's how a lot of Christians view the cross. It was the power of God to get me saved, to get me in the kingdom. That's not what Paul says. What does he say? It is the power of God. It is. Present, active, indicative verb in Greek that has a really powerful meaning. That means you and I still need the cross. 
every single day. So please, please, please don't slide into neutral when we're looking at this event and think, yeah, I've already, I already know about that and I'll hear about it at Easter. I don't know why we're talking about it now. My friends, this is the most powerful reality in the world is the cross. And this is what Satan does not want you to go back and meditate on and reflect on. You know what the Apostle Paul actually said when he came to Corinth? He said, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's pretty amazing. Paul knew a lot. He was a very learned man. Later in the book of Galatians chapter 6, he said, God forbid that I should ever boast or glory except in this, except in the cross. Paul could have boasted in his mighty intellect. He could have boasted and waxed eloquently about his knowledge of Greek poetry and Greek philosophy and of history, his deep, rich insight into God, human beings, religion. He studied at the feet of Amaliel. He was a celebrity church planner. <laughs> he didn't boast in any of those things. In fact, not only did he not boast in them, later he would say that's complete garbage. If I'm trusting in that to give me an identity and to give me power, it's rubbish. That's not what got Paul off the prison floor in the morning. <laughs> what got him off the prison floor and out of bed was the cross. And everywhere he went and every letter he ever preached, the cross was the focal point. So I want you to know that's the focal point of this church. That is the only power that a church plant like Grace Life has is the cross. It's the only power that the New Testament ever introduces us to and keeps turning our eyes back and back toward that. So um, that's what Paul did to the Corinthian church, and that's what I want to continually do for Grace Life Church because all of us struggle. All of us struggle, and maybe we're, we're doing some things, we're rearranging some things, we're shifting some things around, hoping this will work itself out, and we're forgetting the main source of power that God gave us, and that's what we're going to look at today. So with that in mind, I want us to uh, take a look at our outline here. Three points today from this passage. Point number one is the darkness. We're going to look at that. Jesus was judged. Point number two, the curtain. We have access. And the last point is the centurion, the soldier that made this radical confession, uh, which is going to be anyone can get in. So point number one is the darkness. Look at verse 20. Excuse me. Look at verse... Uh, actually, let's go back to verse 25. This is when Jesus was first lifted up on the cross. And it says, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Third hour. That would have been 9 a.m. So from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, people are mocking Jesus, scoffing at Jesus, ridiculing him, making fun of him, slandering him. For three hours, he hung up in broad daylight on a cross, being shamed. Because he was, last week we talked about, not only was he the sin bearer, he was the shame bearer. He bore the shame that you and I deserve as sinners, right? But then something happens, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come. Now in Hebrew, the sixth hour was noon. Noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, he hung in broad daylight, naked. Jesus was naked. He was bloody. It would have been a disgusting thing to look at and behold. The Bible says he did not even resemble a man. All the abuse he suffered. And then something strange happens at the noon hour. The Bible says that darkness fell over the whole land. Now, if you know your Bible at all, it's okay if you don't, but if you know your Bible at all, when there's darkness, that means one thing to a Hebrew. You know what it meant? Judgment. Judgment. 
And I know that makes people uncomfortable sometimes, even in church. But we talk about this because the Bible talks about it. To a Jew, darkness meant judgment and wrath. And there was even a day in the Old Testament that the writers talked about over and over. And it was called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. So I want to read just a few passages. You don't have to turn to it. But I want to set your mind to be thinking what the people at the cross would be thinking that day. Because listen, it's, it's the Passover feast, which meant it was a new moon. Uh, or excuse me, a full moon. And when there was a full moon, there could never be an eclipse. So a lot of people have tried to explain this event away. Well, it was darkness because there was probably an eclipse. It was not an eclipse. They're like, well, you know, the volcano that erupted at Pompeii in AD 79, there's no volcanoes in Israel. They're like, well, there was a storm and there was probably uh, pelting rain and lightning. We don't read anything about a storm anywhere in here. This is not a solar eclipse. This is a divine eclipse. This is God wanting to get everyone's attention who was there. Darkness meant judgment. Check this out. This is from Isaiah chapter 13. Wail, W-A-I-L. For the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. That's just one passage out of dozens. Let me read just a couple more. And on that day, declares the Lord God, the day of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Hmm, it's interesting, isn't it? And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only sun. Morning, M-O-U-R-N. The morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Here's one more passage from Joel chapter 2. The day of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So when you think about darkness and you were a Jew, you would think this is a cosmic sign. This is judgment. The earth is going to quake and tremble. God is going to send his wrath down. And then all of these signs started to happen. And no doubt, all of the Jews that were there started thinking about this. In fact, what they probably thought of the most was Exodus. You remember in Exodus when the children of Egypt, the children of Israel were in Egypt. And the final word that God gave to Pharaoh when he said, let my people go, let my people go. And they wouldn't do, Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And so he began to send plagues. You remember? One plague after the next. The river turned to blood. And then there was lice, there was frogs, there was gnats, there was all kinds of stuff. Locusts, the cattle died, and then one of the final plagues was darkness over the whole land for three days. And the final word of God to Pharaoh was, if you don't heed my warning, the next plague is going to be, I'm going to kill your firstborn. I'm going to kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt unless the people that have faith take a hyssop branch and dip it in blood and and splash it over the doorpost. And then the angel of death will pass over that house. That's what the Passover feast means. So probably most of the Jews that were there were thinking about this. The plague of Egypt. The angel of death coming to visit with destruction. So it turned dark. 
and everyone's thinking God is visiting Palestine today and he's visiting here to judge and to punish. And they're probably thinking, what have we done? We put our Messiah to death. We killed, we killed the Messiah. God sent the Messiah and we killed him. So God's about to punish the Jews. Or maybe God's about to punish the Gentiles. He's going to pour out his wrath on the soldiers, right? He's going to pour out his wrath on Pilate and Herod and Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas. But then something really strange and really shocking happens. Check this out. This is so amazing. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemek Sabathnia, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So judgment came. Judgment came to Calvary in complete darkness. But who was judged? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't the high priest. It wasn't the religious leaders. It wasn't even the soldiers or Herod or Pilate. You know who it was? It was Jesus. Jesus was judged. Hell came to Calvary at noon. And deep darkness swallowed up. The Bible says the whole land. Darkness covered the whole land. And the word that's used there is whole earth. And I believe it's this. And, this, and, and we have to think about this. It will be impossible for you and I to comprehend and to understand and to appreciate the meaning of the cross without remembering this truth that the Bible says, for all have sinned. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And this darkness that covers the whole earth represents all of us deserve that judgment. Jesus is facing the judgment that you and I deserve. That's the deepest meaning of the cross. That's the deep things of God. Jesus is standing in our place and he is crying out. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever been abandoned? Have you ever been forsaken? Has somebody that you care deeply about taken their love away from you? Man, that hurts. It hurts when somebody takes love back, doesn't it? I mean, we've all faced that at one point or another. And listen, the deeper, the deeper that your love is with them and for them, the more it stings, the more agonizing it is. You know, in John chapter 1, it talks about that Jesus and his father, from, the, from eternity past, they had been in one another's bosom. And that's just a way in, in Greek of saying they had been intimate. They had been loving one another and celebrating one another's uh, presence for all eternity. Can you, I can't even wrap my mind around that. For all eternity. And for the first and the last time in Jesus' life, his father takes his love away from him. That's why he's asking the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's covenant language. You know, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Israel. And he said, if you obey me, then you will be my people and I will be what? I will be your God. Had Jesus obeyed God? Perfectly. Perfectly. Jesus kept the covenant we couldn't make and we couldn't, we couldn't keep and we wouldn't keep. He kept it perfectly. So when you keep God's covenant, you should expect blessing, right? That's not what Jesus got though. Jesus kept the covenant perfectly and he got a curse. That's why he's calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, Jesus is asking this question so that we can hear it and we can know that's what you and I deserved. We deserve to have God's love taken from us. We deserve to have God's presence removed from us. That's what this darkness meant at Calvary. Darkness means judgment. I can remember, I'm not really, I wasn't really a kid that was scared of the dark. 
Well, maybe just a little bit when I was really young. But I remember this one time when I played boys club. You may call it peewee or there may be another word for it here. Uh, boys club. I was about, I don't know, seven, eight years old. It was the first year they would let you play in elementary school. And man, we had this really old gymnasium. It was, I thought it was like hundreds of years old. Turns out it was like 30 or 40. But it seemed so ancient to me and it was scary. The lights barely worked, but the really, really scary part was there was a basement. And then at the bottom of the basement, there was a locker room. And I was just a six, seven, eight-year-old kid, and, and I had my clothes with me to go get changed. And all the team decided to play a joke on me uh, and turn the lights out in the locker room and close the door at the top of the stairs and hold the door shut. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Um, and so they did that, and I was down there, and, and all the kids in the school had told stories, ghost stories about this school and the monster that was down in the basement. And they turned those lights out, and they shut that door and left me down in that basement. I'm telling you, something happened to me. I don't know what it was. I just, I have never felt that alone, probably, as a kid and that afraid in all my life. And then I can remember hearing the coach's voice on the other side of the door. And I was saying, let me out, let me out. And I could hear the coach's voice laughing with the kids. And man, that was the knife deep, deep, deep in my heart. My dad listens to these sermons, and I've never told him this. So dad, I, I didn't tell you this to keep you out of jail, because I don't know what my dad would have done to that coach when I was eight years old if he would have heard he did that to me. Have you ever been in darkness and at the same time felt utterly abandoned and alone? And somebody that you thought was going to love you and comfort you and bless you, remove that. And instead you felt betrayed and abandoned and forsaken and cursed. That's what Jesus took on the cross. Jesus was judged. That's what the darkness means. And I think sometimes we have just a really, I'm just being honest, we have a superficial and trite and shallow view of the cross. Jesus didn't cry out, ow, my hands, my hands, the nails, oh, my head, the crown, oh, my friends, my disciples. He didn't say any of that. That's why I told you last week, Mark almost restrained himself. He doesn't talk about any of the physical agonies really at the cross. It just says, and they crucified him. Nothing about the spikes or the nails or the asphyxiation or the, none of that. No, the agony of Jesus was being forsaken by his father when he had lived a perfect and obedient life. That's the agony. That's what the darkness actually meant. That was the darkness. And that's, that's point one. Um, there's a pastor of mine I love to read, and he said this about the darkness. This forsakenness, this loss, was between the father and the son who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the relationship. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. Cosmic darkness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question. And the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. This judgment that should have fallen on us instead fell on Jesus. His cry and the darkness that covered the land declared the same truth. There was real abandonment from the Father as Jesus took on every sin of every man, woman, and child. That is astounding. That's astounding. I went to a funeral a few weeks ago. It wasn't the funeral of my pastor that I preached. It was another funeral in Orlando. Um, and a man died who was very, very close to his children. And his oldest son got up to talk. 
and he was doing great until he said, Dad, not only were you my father, but you were my friend. And I'm going to miss his dad died suddenly, shockingly, perfect health it seemed like, and then he had a heart attack in the middle of the night and died before uh, an ambulance could be dispatched. Shocked, the whole, devastated the whole family. They're still reeling from the shock. And he said, Dad, you're my friend, not just my daddy, and I'm going to miss the talks that we had. Every day we talked on the phone. We would ride in the car. You would give me business advice. We would laugh together, and then the son was holding it together, and then he just absolutely melted in a puddle and just about couldn't finish. Then my heart went out to him. And I think so often we fail to realize what Jesus experienced on that cross was complete, total, utter abandonment. I mean, I have sons. It's a little easier for me to wrap my mind around what that would be like if I just forsook one of my children when they expected me to be there. That would have been the most painful thing. The most painful thing. You know what is really happening on the cross is that God is not sparing Jesus. You would think, well, you know, God's got to pour his wrath out. Somebody's got to be punished for our disobedience and our rebellion, right? We get that, but I mean, Jesus is God's son and he's never disobeyed. Come on. He's, he's going to give him the light punishment, right? No. No, it's not what the Bible says. Look at Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know that word for gave him up? It's a Greek word, paradidomi, and it means to completely and utterly turn somebody over. It's the same word that was used when it says Pilate delivered Jesus to the Jews. It's the same word that's used when the high priest delivered Jesus. No, God did not spare his son. He, he wasn't light on Jesus. He gave him the full measure, the full cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank it to the dregs, to the very bottom, to the very bitter bottom for you and for me. We deserve that. And Jesus stood in our place and he took it. Some people tell us that the crucifixion took place on Mount Moriah. And that would have been the same mountain that hundreds of years before Abraham walked his son Isaac up the mountain being obedient to God. Do you remember this? And it says Abraham bound his son on an altar and he took a knife because God would kill, kill his son. And he took a knife and he raised it up in the air to slaughter his son. That's the word used in Genesis 22. He was going to slaughter his son. And an angel said, stop, wait. Do not harm the child. For now God knows that you fear him. And it says Abraham looked over in the bushes and there was a ram, a goat, a lamb, I guess, with his horns caught in a thicket. And instead of his son being sacrificed, his son was spared and the lamb was sacrificed instead. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, there was no angel. There was no angel that said, wait, stop. Don't harm your son. No, in fact, there was like this visitation of an angel of death, kind of, from Exodus. It's like God came in full judgment and did not spare his son. Jesus was the spotless lamb. Jesus was the high priest, but he didn't come before God with something in his hands. He was the offering. He was the Lamb of God, John said, who took away the sins of the world. That's what this story is really all about. So point number two is uh, what happened next. Check this out. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. They're wanting Jesus to stay alive longer because this is entertaining. They're like, maybe Elijah's going to come and rescue him. 
Let's give him, give him some wine to wake him up a little bit and let's see what happens. They're being cruel. And verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. You know, this was a curtain inside the temple that was at least 60 feet. Some people estimate 80 feet tall. And it could have been as thick as four to six inches. So I don't want you to think this is like this thin curtain that your mom put over your window and you can just rip it with ease. This is almost like a wall. And the instant that Jesus gave up his spirit and died with a loud cry, the Bible says this temple, this curtain inside the temple was ripped in two. It's, it's in the passive tense. The curtain was ripped. Somebody else ripped the curtain. And it says from the top to the bottom. Why do you think that is? If it was ripped from the bottom to the top, they'd say, yeah, one of the high priests did it or something. You know, they got angry. <laughs> no, it was ripped in two, so it was ruined. It could no longer function in the row that it was designed to function in. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Do you know how loud that tearing sound would have been? Four inches to six inches thick. Now, what's going on here? <laughs> well, that veil represented something really significant. You know what it represented? Separation between God and sinful people. That was that that veil, that curtain, it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the common sinful people. And only one person could go in that room once a year. The holiest person, the high priest, on the holiest day, <laughs> Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, could go into the holiest place. The Holy of Holies. But when Jesus gave up his spirit and died on the cross, the Bible says that curtain was ripped into. Why? What's God telling us here? God is saying, look, access is, has been granted. Now anybody can come in. Anybody can, can come in. There's no longer this wall. And you know what's interesting? This is what Hebrews says about this. This is a commentary that Hebrews makes. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Did you read that? And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And I love this verse because it says we can have confidence, we can have boldness, and we can have full assurance that we belong in there. Because of what Jesus did, we don't have to... Be fearful, and we don't have to just tiptoe around like we're walking on eggshells in God's presence. No. The Bible says Jesus has opened up a new way to God. God hasn't changed. He's still holy. He's still just. And we haven't changed. We're still unholy. But Jesus, through his flesh, has made a new way for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God because he paid the penalty. He atoned for us. He sprinkled us with the blood of the covenant, the Bible says, so that we know we belong there. God wants us. God doesn't hold his nose when we get close to him. God doesn't just tolerate us. The Bible says he welcomes us in Christ. And that's what this is about. This is about access. And it's saying the old system of sacrifice is, is obsolete. And a new way has been made and the temple is condemned because of all the practices that were going on there. It's really interesting. And here's the last point. Really fast, the last point. Look what happens, the final thing that happens in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, 
This man was the Son of God. And you can look at that here. I think I have it. Verse 39. Now, notice those three words. This centurion, the Bible says, stood facing Jesus. He stood facing Jesus. And suddenly his eyes were opened. And he made this amazing statement. Now listen, if, you're, if you love to study the Bible uh, book by book, and you're reading through Mark's gospel, you'll notice something. In the very first chapter, Mark opens it up by saying, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the new good news of Jesus, the Son of God. Mark is saying, I'm writing this account, all 16 chapters, to show you that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's interesting, as you read through the, the gospel of Mark, no human being ever acknowledges or confesses who he is. God does. At his baptism, God says, this is my beloved son. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son. Fallen angels that we call demons, they make a declaration to say, you're the son of God, what have you to do with me? But no human being ever makes the declaration and the confession that Jesus is God's son until now. <laughs> until now. And isn't this interesting? God is trying to tell you and I something here. The very first human being that confesses that Jesus is who he claimed he was, was a pagan Gentile soldier that was responsible for the death of Jesus. He was just complicit in the murder of the Messiah. And suddenly his eyes are opened and he says, you're the son of God. In fact, if you look at, I believe it's Luke's version, check this out. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. That threw me off at first when I read that. Now, now wait a minute. If you're saying, I've made a mistake, I was wrong, and Jesus was somebody very special, he was God's son, you wouldn't praise God, would you? <laughs> You'd be like, oh no, I'm, I'm undone. I'm in serious trouble. But he praised God, why? Because I think his mind and his heart was finally open to know that Jesus had just died for him. <laughs> he just Didn't Jesus cry, cry that from the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Right? How many people had this centurion seen executed on a cross? Probably hundreds, maybe thousands. None of them had died the way Jesus had. And when he saw the things that he saw and heard the things that he heard and felt the things that he felt, he knew something was radically and dramatically different about this person dying on a cross than any of the others. And he made this confession. And here's what's so interesting to me, friends. If you really want to see the true identity of who Jesus is and what he came to do, you're only going to see it when you, like this centurion, stand facing him on the cross. That's when God is going to open your eyes. That's where the deep things of God really are. When you see him on the cross. You know, Isaac Watts wrote a hymn, and it's called... When I survey the wondrous cross, and there's a line in there, and I, I didn't write it down, so you may have to help me. But he, and I won't sing it this time, okay? He said, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, I count as gain my greatest, I count as lost my greatest gain and poor contempt on all my pride. Do you remember that line in that hymn? Do you hear what Isaac Watts was a profound theologian and musician? And he is saying, when I stand opposite the cross like this centurion was, there and only there does God give me the strength and the power I need to pour contempt on my pride. How many people in here are proud? Yeah. Most of you, because nobody raised their hand. 
right? Seriously, guys, pride. Pride is the sin. That was the first sin. Satan, Lucifer, was kicked out of heaven. That was the sin that caused Adam and Eve to stand before this tree of knowledge and to find wisdom in their own terms instead of God's. Pride. Pride. And Isaac Watts was on to something. He says, I don't get any help from my pride anywhere than when I stand staring into the face of the bleeding God-man who was sent to be my substitute. Then I find help. Then I find help. You know what this centurion was saying? And, and I'm closing with this. This centurion was saying, I have been wrong about everything in my life up to this moment. I have been wrong. And friends, I want to tell you the truth. As a Christian, there's times you still need to say this. That's part of your repentance. Repentance should be preceded by confession. I was wrong. I'm agreeing with God. I was off. I was wrong. I see it now. I was wrong about everything. I was stubborn. I was stubborn about the way I was treating my family, my spouse, my wife, my children. I was stubborn. I was wrong and proud about the way I was viewing the purpose of my life and the meaning of my life and treating the people around me. And I was so blind and hardened and calloused by it. Couldn't we all say that? <laughs> Do you want help for your pride? This is where you're going to get it. You're going to get it at the cross. That's the deepest place where you can find the help for the problems that you're facing and for the conflicts that you're facing, for the identity crisis that you're facing, for the self-loathing that you're facing, for the guilt that you're facing, for the shame that you're facing. You're only going to get help for it at the cross. That's what the Apostle Paul said. The word of the cross, it's foolishness. It's, it's folly. The Greeks demanded a sign, or excuse me, the Greeks demanded wisdom and the Jews demanded a sign and Paul preached the cross. It was a stumbling block to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, the wisdom of God, the sanctification of God. The cross is where all the power that you need flows from. And if you're changing out your filter and if you're sucking out the drain pipes and you're still wondering, I think I feel cold air, maybe this will fix itself. It won't, friends. It won't. Somebody has knocked the cross off of the concrete slab in your life and it's lying mangled under somebody's Ford Explorer. Or maybe somebody stole it right out from under you for the copper in the coils. I don't know. But I'm telling you, the only place where you and I are going to get any power is from the cross. It's, that's it. That's it. That's the power of this church. That's the power for your life. And I want to spend the rest of my life as a pastor talking about it, just like the Apostle Paul. I'm reading a book right now by Martin Lloyd-Jones called The Cross. One of the best books I've ever written ever written did I say that Lord help me with my pride <laughs> yeah I wrote it back in the 60s it was hard <laughs> he had been preaching at Westminster Chapel in London for 26 years and he said something like this he said there have been times in my ministry where the devil has tempted me I have I have nothing else to say he said and I'm thankful to say that after 26 years looking at the cross again I'm just getting started Man, that's how I feel for Grace Life in our fifth year here. We are just getting started. There's so much more of the cross for us to encounter and to plumb the depths and to put our scuba gear on and get the help that we need. So let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Your word says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated his love to us in this way, that he died for us. When we were weak, you died for us. When we were your enemies and far from you, you died for us. Lord, you didn't wait for us to get strong. You didn't wait for us to wave a white flag. You came down from heaven, Lord, and you made peace with us on the cross. That's what this story is about. That's what the meaning is about. 
And Lord, I just sense in my heart so many Christians, including myself, I'm including myself, we have just barely scratched the surface of the, the deep meaning of the cross of Calvary. That's where you want us to meet you and experience your transforming power for change, for hope, for humility. That's the only place, Lord, where failure won't go to our heart and success won't go to our head. That's where, as John Stott said, we are taken down a few notches to our true size, Lord. We need to be shrunk. So many of us have so much pride, Lord, that we deal with. And others are hurt by it and damaged by it. There's collateral damage in our relationships at work, at home, with our children, with our spouse. And I pray, God, that we would know that this is, this is you helping us. Even today, Lord, help us to receive this. And if there's somebody here, Lord, they have never stood like the centurion stood. Maybe they're, maybe they're hopeless. Maybe they think God could never forgive me for the things I've done. Lord, show them how sinful and barbaric this centurion was. He murdered people. He murdered Christians. He was complicit in the death of Jesus. And yet, when you opened up a way, when the curtain ripped and access had been granted to God, the first person that came through was a rugged old barbaric Roman centurion, Lord. There's hope for us. I pray that nobody here would leave helpless or hopeless, Lord. You would show us the, the true, the new, the living way through the blood of Christ into your presence. And I ask and, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.